Now, I invite us to turn, you to turn with me in the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, as we continue in our uh, series of messages in this book, this letter that John has written to the church. 1 John chapter 2, we'll be looking at just the first two verses. I didn't do it. The look on my son's face and his body language confirmed what I already knew to be true. He was not telling me the truth. I don't even remember how now the specific boyhood crime that he was pleading innocent about. But I very clearly remember the feeling I had of both rising anger and deep sorrow as a, father, as a father, as one of my children, not only did something that he shouldn't have done, but then compounded it by blatantly lying about it. Whether it was out of the fear of the consequences or the embarrassment of his actions or the delusion that he really didn't do what he obviously did, or even when presented with my irrefutable evidence, he persisted in his claim that he was not the guilty party. And rather than proceed with the normal discipline I would have given as a parent on that occasion, I remember telling him and sitting down and talking to him and just telling him of how the immediate consequences that he might receive for disobeying or doing something wrong would be nothing compared to the growing burden of guilt and that he would feel and the ongoing breaking of trust between himself and, and me that would result if he continued to lie about it. I said that as his father, I wanted it and expected him to do what was right, but I also wanted and expected for him to be honest and to admit when he did something wrong because only then would he truly, truly be, be free from the weight of guilt that he would carry and would he truly know the depth of the of the love that I have for him and then I left it at that my great burden for my son at that moment was that he would not only know the importance of of obeying what was right but but he would have the confidence of of being able to confess when he was wrong and knowing that as his father I would still love him and care for him and the Apostle John's burden for his readers in this first letter is that they would know the great blessing, they would know the joy of fellowship with God who is light and life through his son Jesus. And he opens his letter by reminding them of the darkness of human sin in contrast to the divine light of God's holy character and the, and the righteous truth that is manifest in the person of his son Jesus. And John exposes the danger of some of the false teaching his readers were, were encountering that was downplaying the seriousness of sin and even denying the reality of sin and still claiming to have fellowship with God. And John, and God, and John tells them to continue living in sin or to say we have no sin or have not sinned is to lie, is to deceive ourselves with regard to our fellowship with God. And John says to continue to live in sin or to say that we have no sin or, or have not sinned um, leads to break brokenness in that fellowship. 
Rather, he says, if we live in the light of God's righteousness and the truth of our sin will be exposed, and if we confess our sin, our Father stands ready and eager to forgive sin and to restore fellowship through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so John has this fatherly compassion, not only to, to show his children the importance, that we might see the importance of walking in the light of God's grace and truth, but we would also see the seriousness of sin and the freedom that comes in confessing and admitting that sin. But John doesn't want to, us to be mistaken or he doesn't want to be mistaken as saying the, the inevitability of sin means that sin is, is, is unavoidable and that we should just be resigned to it or live in denial of it. And so again, with the tenderness and the compassion, as well as the, the authority of a wise and loving father, John exhorts them with a challenging possibility and he encourages us with a comforting promise. And that's what we're going to look at in these two verses. And so writing as a spiritual father to his children in the faith, John says in chapter 2, verses 1, follow along with me. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Even after what John has said about sin at the end of chapter 1, that we all have it, that we all do it, John's intentions and his, his challenge for his readers and for us is still that we would not sin. He exhorts us with this challenging possibility that those who truly know God, that those who have fellowship with God through Christ have ever before us, that we would live and that we would walk in righteousness and that we would avoid sinning. What he does believe in, excuse me, John does not believe in the sinless perfection achieved in this life, nor does he believe in the hopeless resignation that we just have to continue living and dealing with with sin, with sin. But he does believe in the transforming power of Christ's work to enable his followers to resist and refrain from sin. See, for the unredeemed man, sin is not just inevitable, but it is actually unavoidable. We are not just bothered by its presence, but we are bound by its power. And, and unregenerate uh, human beings in their fallen state, as Augustine noted, are non passe, non peccare, not able not to sin. But in Christ, who redeems us from sin and who restores us in righteousness before God, our will is freed from its bondage to sin and its power over us. We, are, we become a new creation, as Paul says, now able, to do, not, now able to do what we were unable to do before. Say no to sin. We are now passe non peccare, able not to sin. In Christ, we have, we have died to sin and thus no longer must live in it, as Paul says in Romans 6. Sin no longer reigns in our bodies, but to make us obey its, its passion. And therefore, we are called to, to walk in holiness, to, to not present our bodies as instruments for unrighteousness, 
but to present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. He says, sin will have no dominion over you for you are not under law but under grace. And so God's grace in Christ now empowers us not to sin. We are no longer tempted beyond what we are able, but God provides a way of escape. And so John says knowing and being in fellowship with God goes beyond just just having intellectual or theological knowledge. It certainly requires believing what is true about God and about Jesus, but it is also manifested in in a transformed mind and heart and life that is now motivated and able to pursue and practice obedience to Christ's commands and and living in the light of his love and of his righteousness. You see, sin in in John's mind and and in the the testimony of the the scriptures themselves is utterly comprehensive. It encompasses not only a right belief in, in trusting in what God has done for us in Jesus, but a right behavior in following his commands and and a right motivation that flow from his love for us in Christ. And thus to, to not sin goes deeper than just checking off a list of expected behaviors. It gets to the very core of what it is to know and to love and to live in fellowship with and empowered by God himself who calls us out of light, out of darkness into light, out of death into life, a life that is now able to be lived in the light of God's holiness and his grace. So to know God is to know his enabling grace to to say no to sin and thus to embrace the challenge to not sin by keeping his commands and walking in his love. And, and just the very nature of that challenge that John gives here to say, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin, the heart of a father to see his children walk in godliness. Just that challenge brings with it a great hope. It reminds us that sin, victory over sin is possible. You are not resigned to live under the burden and the weight of sin in your life. Whatever struggle with sin you face, whatever whatever sin uh, you feel resigned to repeat over and over, whatever temptation you find irresistible, whatever hurt you have experienced at at the hands or the sin of others, in Christ, God sets us free to walk into the light of his grace and truth. And by his spirit, he, he now empowers, he enables us to resist the devil in his ways, to, to turn from evil and the sinful desires of our flesh and embrace what is good and right and to walk in the power of the spirit. To not sin is not easy. <laughs> it's hard work. It requires a serious endeavor, a God-given desire to to live as he has called us to live and to, to carry it out. But God not only calls us to it, but he equips us for it through the finished work of his son, Jesus. And that is the, the, the comforting promise that John goes on to encourage us with here. Robert Yarborough as Robert Yarbrough puts it in his commentary, the antithesis of sin 
is not simply the absence of unacceptable behavior or the conviction at discrete forbidden points, but the knowledge of God in a fullness that betokens the active presence of his saving grace. It's his saving grace at work in us that comes only through the person and work of Christ for us, as John tells us. Recognizing the the lofty goal to which we are challenged and called in Christ to not sin, John also recognizes that achieving such a goal is impossible without some comfort, some hope for when we fail in the process. And that hope rests, he says, on the finished work of Christ's sacrifice for our sin and his ongoing intercession as our advocate with God the Father. John says, my children, I I want you not to sin, but if you do sin. And notice he says, if, not when, kind of further driving home the point that, that we now have the ability to resist sin. But if we do sin, and the reality is that we will, and we all do, he says, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. John says, strive for holiness. Pursue godliness. Walk in the the light of God's grace and truth. Walk as Jesus himself walked. But when you fail or when you fall, there is a sure hope. Before John goes on with the imperatives of obeying Christ's command, he reminds us of the the importance of resting our hope on the saving, sanctifying work of Jesus on the cross. Knowing and depending upon what Jesus has done is the only thing that that fortifies our hearts and encourages our soul for doing what he calls us to do. When the fear of condemnation for failure is removed, we have the comfort and the courage to boldly step out in faithful obedience and love. And John speaks of Jesus' work as having both a past and a present aspect. He is the propitiation or the once and for all atoning sacrifice that has removed God's wrath and punishment which our sin deserves, his work on the cross. And he is our present, he has at present our advocate interceding on our behalf before God. And John begins with the latter. He says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous John calls Jesus our advocate, which is the the Greek word parakaleton, used in John's gospel by Jesus to speak there of the Holy Spirit. It is translated some places as a, as a a helper, a comforter, a counselor, and it means literally one who comes alongside to help or assist and here, it's, it's rightly translated advocate because it's used in the, in the legal sense of the word, like we might refer to a, a defense attorney speaking on our behalf as the accused. It's someone who pleads the case of a defendant, someone who speaks in our defense. Jesus told his disciples when he, that when he left, he would send another helper, another advocate, speaking of the Holy Spirit who would be with us here on earth 
And just as he gives us the the Holy Spirit here to testify to his work and to to his word uh, in a hostile world, Jesus is our advocate with the Father in heaven, testifying before him and on our behalf against our sin. In Christ and in God's spirit with us, we have the greatest defense team any court of law could ever imagine. John says, if we sin, we have an advocate to argue our case. And the nature of Christ's advocacy before the Father is rooted not in what what we have done, but in what he has done on our behalf. Imagine the, the case file of your life being opened up to the light of God's holiness and perfection. And you stand before God as judge for what you have done. And the, the prosecution begins to, to read the list of charges. Satan himself standing there saying, listing them out. There's anger. There's gossip. Maybe lying. Cheating. Slander. Stealing. That time you blew up at your spouse or your children. That time you, you, uh, you went around the truth in order to get something that you desired at work. That time you looked past the ones who were suffering around you, not wanting to get involved in the messiness of helping or serving them. And as each charge is, is levied there before The throne, Jesus, your defense attorney, stands speaking for you. And at first, it's not the defense you might expect. As the list goes, he says, yes, that's true. Yes, he did that. Yes, she is guilty of that. No, they have no basis for appeal on that charge. It's true. No, I can't give you anything to commend them to you your honor there is no reason that they deserve anything less than the full judgment of the court yea even the death sentence and you might be going what kind of defense is this well it's true his testimony is true but then Jesus turns the defense to the very basis uh, of his, that his advocacy is effective on our behalf he says Lord, I plead, your, I plead not on the basis of what my client has done, but on what I have done for them. You see, Your Honor, I have never broken any law. I have lived a perfect, righteous, and holy life. There is nothing on my record that deserves in any way the judgment or punishment of this court. And Your Honor, in submission to Your will and out of the motivation of Your love, I was sent to carry out the redemption of those who are mine, to pay the ransom for what they have done. And I've already taken the penalty and punishment for this one's guilt. I took upon myself their sin and suffered in their place, and now my righteousness belongs to them forever. Therefore, justice has been satisfied. Mercy has been granted for this child of yours. They are forgiven Because I was forsaken for them. They are accepted because I took their condemnation upon me. Receive them once again into your gracious love and care because of me. That's Jesus, our advocate. 
And he doesn't make excuses for us. He makes atonement for us. He is a righteous advocate who died for his unrighteous enemies and now lives to intercede for them based upon his purchased righteousness for them. And his defense doesn't stop. He lives to intercede on our behalf. What a glorious thought. Jesus is your advocate. And if you sin, when you sin, you go to him and he pleads your case before the Father. And his intercession and his advocacy are made possible because Jesus himself paid the penalty for our sin. John says he is the propitiation for our sins. His advocacy in the courtroom for us is rooted in his atonement at the altar of God's justice. He speaks for us before God because he was sacrificed for us by God. The Greek word propitiation speaks of the the removal of anger or wrath by an acceptable sacrifice or an offering. In reaction to this kind of unpleasant thought of of God as an angry deity needing to be placated, scholars have have often sought to soften the the idea of propitiation to to Jesus, not necessarily placating God's, God's anger and wrath, but simply removing the stain of sin and bringing forgiveness and cleansing and opening the way for God's love and grace. This might sound like a subtle difference, but it kind of takes away the thought of of God actually having wrath and and anger and, and, and needing punishment for sins against His holiness and His righteousness. But the language and the reality of God's wrath against sin and the need for sacrifice and blood to atone to atone for that sin is revealed by God Himself throughout Scripture and His dealings with His people. And it makes it clear That Jesus did not come and die just to to cleanse us from sin. Just to to remove the need for for God's mercy and grace and open the way to his love. But he came to bear the punishment, to take upon himself the wrath and the forsakenness of God that sin warrants. And he did it in our place. He didn't just make a sacrifice for our sin. He didn't just offer up propitiation. He is the propitiation. He is the one who steps into our place. And so when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father and we have assurance of His success in pleading our case because the one who speaks for us is the one who offered Himself up in our place to remove God's anger, to redeem us from sin and to restore peace and fellowship with our Father. Imagine, if you will, in the case of my son, which I mentioned earlier, if he went to his brother and he said, hey, hey, can you come? Can you, can you speak on my behalf before dad about this? And then upon confessing that indeed he did what earlier he said he didn't do, imagine his brother, who's now there with him, stepped in and said, dad, I know he did it. I know why he did it. And I know he deserves what's coming. And even though I didn't have anything to do with it, let me take the consequences for him. He didn't do that, by the way. But in the example, we see he is both advocating on behalf of, as well as putting himself in the place of his brother in order 
to save him from the, the just punishment and consequences of his sin and also to, to restore him to fellowship with his father. But Jesus' advocacy and his sacrifice go further than that. It was not at our pleading that Jesus would come and, and intercede for us that he did so. It was not even at his own initiative that he said, oh, oh man, these folks are in a lot of trouble and my father is going to give it to them unless I step in and, and rescue them. No, the amazing thing here is that it is the very love of the Father that moves and motivates him to send his son Jesus. And it is the very love and, and, uh, and grace of the Son that, that motivates him to submit to the Father's will and to come and take on the very nature and the substance of mankind to be, to be born like one of his brothers and sisters and step into our place the one who is light and life in himself comes down and becomes incarnate as one of us in order that he might not only identify with us and face all the, the temptations that we face, but that he might live a perfect life, that he might uphold his righteousness as God and then that he might bear the judgment and the punishment for sin that we deserve, that we might be delivered. Jesus willingly obeys the will of his Father, submits himself to suffering and death, and being forsaken by God on the cross for us. Our sins are paid for, and God's wrath is removed, that it might not, not ever be revisited upon us again. See, the one who stands before the Father and pleads in your favor for forgiveness and cleansing and righteousness does so as the one who has fully borne the Father's wrath for you, that you might know his love and his life and his fellowship forever. We sang earlier, he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And John says, the scope was not limited just to us. His sacrifice is sufficient, not just for our sin, not just for your sin, but for the sin of the whole world. Now, John is not, not advocating a, a universalism here. He's not saying that, that everyone in the world is therefore covered by the, the sacrifice of Christ and that he is, he is advocating for everyone in the whole world before the Father. He's using the term as it's used elsewhere to say that Jesus' death and, and resurrection are sufficient to cover the sin of all his people from every place and time and circumstance. There is nowhere that Jesus is, the, the effects of Jesus' sacrifice for sin cannot reach. And there is no one for whom Jesus' sacrifice cannot ultimately save. As far as the curse is found, so far is his love for us. Therefore, let us embrace it. Let us embrace it. Whether for the first time or for the hundred thousandth time, Jesus, our sacrifice, secures our pardon. He pleads our case before the Father. And the Father is faithful and just to hear our case. 
to receive his plea on our behalf and to forgive us and to cleanse us and to to receive us as his beloved children, forgiven and free. You know, as I think back on that time with my son, I actually don't remember if he ever came and confessed what he did that day. But what I do remember and why that story sticks out in my mind so much is I remember that it marked a turning point for him as we saw him, as I saw him grow and for me in our relationship of sorts. From that point on, I noticed that he was a little more sensitive to his sin. And he was actually more quick to repent. I also noticed he took more seriously the the, the commands I, I had for him or the, the um, responsibilities I expected of him as his father. And I noticed that he, he knew my love for him more was not rooted in his behavior, but in who he was as my son and the desire for him to know and experience the love of Christ. Did he stop sinning? No. <laughs> but God used that that time to I believe work in him to help him be more understanding of what sin is and and what it means to come and confess and to live and depend on God's love and righteousness for him you know God's desire for us as his children is the same his desire for his children is that we would not sin And through Christ Jesus, he not only frees us from the penalty and punishment for when we do sin, but he now equips and enables us to resist sin and to live in his light. And we do that only by his grace and his power. Only by striving in that grace and in the power of his Holy Spirit to turn away from sin and to to walk in righteousness. And by knowing that when we fail, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ, the righteous one who has laid down his life for us. Let us pray. Father God, we know that you have revealed yourself to us And that your design and your desire for us as those who are created in your image is that we would not sin. So Lord, we ask that you would come and give us the conviction and the desire the ability to resist temptation, to turn from evil, to walk in the light, to live according to your truth. And Lord, where we don't do that, make us quick to confess our sin to come to you and to those whom we have sinned against and to come knowing that we have 
an advocate with you. One who has come and walked in our shoes. One who has revealed the light of your truth and your grace and your glory to us in a way that we can, as John says, see and hear and experience. And he is the propitiation for our sin. Because of his life and his death and his resurrection for us, Lord, our sin is forgiven. Your wrath is turned away. Your love is extended for eternity. And so, Lord, for us here this morning, wherever we are, whatever struggle we are facing, whatever sin we are wrestling with, Lord, whatever fear we have, Lord, would you open our hearts to come and confess them to you and to lay them at your feet. And even now as we come to the table where we not only see and hear, but we partake of your sacrifice given to us and for us once and for all that we might live and that we might know you and know fellowship with you and with one another. Lord, would you work that in us even more? We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.